Okay, so I've, I've made the point that we're going to head for a third barley type, so I should talk about what are the measurable changes that occurred during this breeding. And I, I want to be clear on something because one, a lot of brewers and sometimes maltsters, they call these varieties hot. And, and what they mean is they take this malt or barley and when they malt it, it gives them a high output of soluble protein and enzymes and fan. And they consider this, it's just hot to handle and it's a hot variety. It's going to make a lot of these artifacts. But these are artifacts of two more significant changes that took place. And I want to focus on the primary drivers. And that was expanding S over T ratios because Betz's could make very good malt at 38 S over T. And Metcalf pretty much typically is 47% S over T. And then also an expanding total protein coming in from agriculture. Because typical Betzes, we still grew those European varieties as European varieties, and the typical Betzes was uh, 10.5 protein, where a typical Metcalf now is in the, is in the middle 12s, 12.5% or so. So it's more important to understand those mechanics because the things that fall out of having higher total pro and higher, higher S over T ratios are the drivers of this. So I need to take a step into malting mechanics a minute to explain this. Uh, Maltsters have to make functional malt. And and functional malt is easily defined as trouble-free loudering and runoff and high, easy, easy to recover, high extract recovery, high yields in the rate of extract recovery. And to do this, there's two aspects of it. One is, one is protein simplification. The, the total insoluble protein in barley has to be reduced to produce enzymes and the free amino nitrogen. Um, and then a, a, a range of soluble proteins that, inter, that interact for body flavor and foam. So that's the protein side. On the carbohydrate simplification, to get free-flowing and functional extract, you've got to reduce the structural cell walls that encapsulate the starch granules and create free-flowing and recoverable starch at the brewery. And this is breaking down the beta-glucan and the pentazans, uh, such as arabinozylan, to break those down to free the starch. Now, these two functions overlap. And and, um, the place that they overlap is in the cell wall simplification to free the uh, extract because that cell wall is also built with protein as well as the structural carbohydrates. So you can't say, well, here's the protein over here independently and here's the, the carbohydrate simplification independently because they touch because the, the cell wall surrounding the starch is structurally com- a combination of structural carbohydrates and proteins. So maltsters have to find a balance. They have to figure out just how much protein simplification is needed to get to the cell wall. Uh, And I'll introduce the concept of what they have to do is they have to reach the point in S over T ratio that they've created the beta-glucan reduction enabler because they just can't be satisfied to say, I created enzymes and I've got good fan and I've got foaming proteins. If they stop short of getting to the amount of protein simplification that's needed to digest the protein part of the cell wall where the beta-glucan is. So 
this balance is is a genetic trait. This is I want to make a point that this is a genetic trait, and every barley variety is different. Every variety has a sweet spot. Um, let me just give you some examples of uh, barley varieties that I've been involved with. The, the lowest one that I know of right now, there's a Czech, there's a Czech variety called uh, Bojo's. That makes a very low beta glucan if you modify it at 37 to 39 percent. S over T. As I mentioned, the, the Europeans haven't changed their thoughts too much. The most common, um, the most common two rows in Germany now would be Propino, uh, Avalon, and Soloist. They will make very good malt at forty to forty-two S over T. Now, when we started this revolution in the United States, and we moved away from that profile that Betzis had, uh, Harrington needed a 42 to 44 Harrington uh, uh, in terms of increased S over T. Metcalf needs 46 to 48. And we'll talk about Copeland a little more. That's a step back from um, Metcalf, but not as low as Harrington. It requires, uh, well, similar to Harrington, it requires a 42 to 44. Um, the Hockett that's common in the United States is 45 to 47. The important concept here is that it's a, it's a genetic, apparently a genetic, balance between uh, simplifying the protein and the carbohydrate and it's important to understand that a maltster can't create one variety from another because i've heard many brewers traditional brewers say well the maltster should just control modification um, so we don't get so much uh, fan and we don't get much emmet but that's a flawed concept because with some varieties the maltster can't reach functional malt without uh, raising the S over T. It's a genetic profile issue, and that's the key thing that we've changed in the breeding of two rows. Um, and I also would say that um, the I did not say here that the S over T increase is to achieve a low beta-glucan. I said it's to enable a low beta-glucan. The, the protein solubilization that penetrates the protein part of the cell, cell wall is the enabler so that if the rest of the process is handled correctly to create the beta-glucanase and give it a chance to work uh, in the end of the process, in the fourth day of germination, you'll get a drop in beta-glucan. You have to create the enabler to reduce the beta-glucan. So if you don't create the enabler, the beta-glucan will never come down. But there's also cases where you can create the enabler and then mismanage the rest of the, the malting process and the beta-glucan doesn't come down either. So this is the fundamental change. This expanding S over T requirement to get functional malt out of the new um, out of the new varieties. So if that, you know, if S over T is expanded like that over, you know, many uh, decades, you know, how did that actually why did that actually happen? Well, was that a conscious decision? Well, it, you're correct that it had to go through some appro approval processes. Uh, let me get to that in just a minute because I wanted to mention that it's important to, to also know that we've allowed the total protein in from production agriculture to expand to change a lot over time. Right. So, you know, and that has changed a lot from 10.5 up to 12.5, and you have to consider that total protein, the storehouse of all the complex protein that's going to be converted by the higher S over T. So you have a high creation of artifacts in the S over T, 
and you're providing it more raw material, so to speak, in terms of total uh, protein coming from agriculture. There's one other factor that's really likely here, and this is a I can't this is a coincidence of when this was going on. We were just developing the beginnings of beta glucan measurements, and we were just under. This is in the '80s. We were just understanding the beta glucan role in brewing and how to manage it in the malt plant. And this coincides with this breeding of new varieties. And you have to look at beta glucan as the glue that holds the extract together. We've gone through two iterations of beta glucan. When it first came out, it was well understood the interference of high beta glucan with smooth loudering. And it's pretty much agreed on that in most loudering systems, if you go above 180, 200 beta-glucan, you're going to have some some loudering problems. But it also became understood at a second level that even if you didn't, if you came down through the 160s, 150s, 140s, even if you didn't have loudering problems, you were not getting the maximum extract out of the out of the malt and what was determined then if you really want free-flowing extract you need to get below 100 and we could see steadily the extract going up and recovery rates in the brew house uh, going up so it's possible that this s over t could have been pushed further because of a, of a developing understanding of beta glucan at the same time hmm. and, and and it's kind of an open question if 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 we had known about this in 1960, when we had Betz's as our primary variety, would we have been pushing the S over T on Betz's if the understanding existed back then? So that's a, that's kind of sort of in the middle of this. Um, now, let me get to the question where you, that you asked as far as uh, how did this happen? How did it occur? Because we do have new variety approval processes um, that, that, that these had to go through. And um, uh, I, I would be the first to admit at the beginning of these comments, this is with perfect 2020 hindsight because I'm looking back at it now as fortunate to represent three different companies at AMBA over 30 years, including I represented Pabst at its founding in 1982. Now, as we went through these changes, there was no there was no participation in AMBA by all malt brewers at the beginning at all. And there was some interest in two-row, but it all came from the West because that's where the two-row was coming. And the Western malting companies, both in Canada and the United States, had export businesses. Um, and uh, they had export off to the Pacific Rim, where people were looking for the traditional two row that would come out of uh, that would come out of Europe or Australia. Um, and there doesn't seem to be the interest that was in two row was being dealt with within the Coors and AB breeding programs because they were brewing two rows for their own interests. Um, another another observation of why things expanded back then, the breeding guidelines at that time had many equal or better than the Czech variety statements in it. In other words, a breeder got a message that I want a new variety that has equal or more enzyme than the last variety or than the Czech variety. And they didn't really have at that time, we didn't, we weren't smart enough yet. Uh, we didn't have a cap on numbers. We never said anything about how much enzyme is too much enzyme, uh, how much fan is too much fan. So, but for a couple of years in there, in the through the 80s, all the guidelines really focused on was make it equal or better. 
In other words, keep pushing it upward, keep pushing it upward. So there was no, you know, but there was no two-row voice, and there was certainly no almost two-row voice. Also, this guideline of, there was always an AMBA guideline that you have to have balanced modification in four-day germ. And all those older two rows were five-day germination. Um, And I can tell you from my own personal experience, no one put their hand up and said, hey, guys, you know, this isn't really two-row. There was that voice wasn't there. That voice or that connection to the classic definition or European two row just wasn't there. And were the germination uh, times in Europe uh, still st- longer? Still, they are. They still are. They are today. Yeah, they are today. They're five day. They're five day, and uh, the Czechs have even a more traditional process. They have a six day germination. Uh, they tend to think of a really cool slow patient process they grow their six-day germination with some cooler temperatures and less green malt moisture they're just they're just they're just historically running a nice patient slow process but you won't find or you really won't find four-day malting in uh, most of europe Uh, it's still all five-day on the varieties they have and i think probably if i look at it john if i look at What's the real factor here? The, the real factor is we were increasing the S over T, the soluble protein, the enzymes. Um, we didn't have a wide use of fan back then. That wasn't in play. These numbers just were not foreign to maltsters or brewers. They looked like six-row. Six-row breeding was advancing at the same time. And I would look back on it now, again, with perfect hindsight and say, well, look, the numbers weren't any different than the malt that we've been using for 300 years. So what could be wrong with those numbers? What could be wrong with two-row looking like six-row? It'd be more functional. It'd be more useful to, again, an association that was made up entirely at that time of adjunct brewers. So they got approved. Now, that's changed a little bit um, because in 2014, AMBA now has separate guidelines for all malt two-row. Because now there is an all malt voice in AMBA. There's there's a significant number of craft maltsters and craft brewers in AMBA, and uh, they have um, uh, not tried to change the overall breeding guidelines, but said, "Now wait a minute. There's a different malt that's needed in all malt brewing." But that's only been in play since 2014. And is that voice loud enough? And does it know what to ask for? Well. That's a that's an interesting question because you have a because you have two brewers, two large brewers in the United States, making eighty five percent of the beer and consuming sixty five percent of the malt. Now, it's true that the craft brewing industry, for the amount of beer they make, consumes a disproportionate amount of malt. They're somewhere at thirty six, thirty seven percent of all the malt. But there's six thousand voices there. Um, and unless they're pulled together through the Brewers Association or through AMBA membership, um, because I would imagine within craft brewing, there's a number of people that say, look, I built a really successful product on the malt that I have, and I don't have any need to do anything different. Uh, and there's people that have adapted their processes to it. So I'm not sure how big or how fast uh, this is going to go. I do know it won't reverse breeding in the United States because the adjunct brewers have the malt they want. So what it would be, it would be a second uh, group of malts that would be developed and they would be aimed back toward the traditional um, European guidelines.
coming up. For an all malt brewer that insists on two row, um, he's really brewing with a with six row traits. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Milwaukee meets May 17th at Central Waters Brewing. District Northwest meets in beautiful Hood River the weekend of May 18th. District Rocky Mountain holds its technical summit in Fort Collins May 19th. District New York meets at Anheuser-Busch in Newark June 14th. District Philly's annual golf meeting is June 15th. Registration is now open for the ASBC MBAA Brewing Summit, which takes place in San Diego this August. Register at mbaa.com, where you can also view the full calendar of events with more details or find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. Joe, you you already mentioned the massive benefits that Molsters received uh, throughout this evolution of North American two-row, but in the supply chain, who benefited the most? Barley producers, by far, gained the most. Um, between Betsis, and if I went a step further than um, Metcalf to Meredith, that resulted in a 36% yield increase across the barley industry but for barley farmers they got increased head counts with plumper kernels higher test weights better shatter resistance so it didn't law improved um, stiffer straw improved against lodging more disease resistant clearly barley producers benefited the most but that's what breeding is directed at crop improvement maltsters gained also but they picked up a couple of disadvantages First of all, their uniform kernels, the better the better kernels and um, uniformity, that reduced barley cleaning losses. One of the things that brewers or that maltsters are faced is as soon as they get raw barley in, they have to clean it. So that's a direct economic loss, whether that's three, you paid for something and you're going to throw away some percentage of it. And, um, you know, sometimes on six rows, that's as much as 10% or on thinner two rows, 10%. But, but with good uniform um the new varieties cleaning losses are at three percent or so so they so they gained from economically from a more uniform kernels also the more uniform kernels they have more consistent and spontaneous water uptake it, it eliminated the need to malt by different size grades years ago when varieties had more different uh, diversity of kernel sizes you had to separate the kernel sizes and malt them separately but now that's not true anymore. You can t- you can take the whole run of malt above the screen that you want to grade at and malt it together. They have just very spontaneous water uptake and, and uniform malting. And again, it eliminated 72-hour steeping. Every steeping system now is 48 hours or less. It ended five-day malting. All germination is four days less. But you said that maltsters also kind of took a hit too, though, right? Yes. And here's where they took a hit. This spontaneous malting, the reverse side of that is reduced seed dormancy and the risk of pre-harvest sprout. Um, Because 
one person's spontaneous and fast molding is another person's lack of stability for long-term storage. These varieties brought what you hear now about in the American molding industry about this problem with pre-harvest sprout and lack of stability in storage. That was brought by this breeding evolution accidentally. And again, it's one of those things where we look at it, boy, this is a good variety. It just takes off in the malt house really fast. But in some seasons, not every season, if we have poor harvest conditions, we have pre-harvest sprout and we lose barley. And for sure, these barleys are less stable in long-term storage. So that's a, uh, that's a, that's a problem. Also, these higher modification profiles that give brewers more extract at the margin, give maltsters more malting loss. Because pushing through to that more of a degree of modification to break open the cell walls and free the extract, that's, that's pushing the germination uh, a little bit further. And it and it and it's represents a malting loss. So they've lost a little bit there. But they really gained on the malt plant construction because now they, can, they have less equipment and simpler construction. Okay, so how about the brewers then? It sounds like maybe well, it depends on what kind of brewer you are. Exactly. You, the brewers gained or lost depending on their brewing approach and their brewing system. Everybody gained from steadily increasing extract. These varieties all had another step up in extract. Um, and it, and this, it, this kept increasing with the knowledge that lower beta-glucan released extract. If you get under 200 beta-glucan, you clear the loudering issues. You get under 100 beta-glucan, you really have a lot of extract release. So the increased enzymes in this made um, adjunct brewing more efficient. It actually has allowed the elimination of six-row from adjunct brewing, um, and that's in progress. Um, but the also increased uh, enzymes enabled standard lagers to have, uh, uh, to evolve to a higher RDF. Uh, you know, when I started in brewing, standard lagers were about 62% degree of attenuation to reach uh, 5% uh, ABV, and they were at about 12 gravity. They've slowly evolved over a long period of time to 69, 68, 69% degree of attenuation uh, and dropped now. Uh, still have the 5% ABV, but have dropped to like 10.8. And that's pretty much standard across international loggers also. So we, there was gains, but brewers have lost a little bit too. Now, this depends, again, on the brewer or the product, but the increased protein modification, there's more soluble protein, but there's also a higher percentage of enzyme deg degradation products within the soluble protein. And this directionally goes toward thinner beers with lower foam quality because, you know, you can't, you can't stop enzyme um, functions. You, if you let them go, they're indiscriminate. So, yeah, we're making more of the insoluble soluble, but at the same time, the enzymes in the malting plant are racing toward the lowest common denominator, toward all amino acids. Um, and they're, they're, they're breaking up some of the some protein levels that we think are really important to foam and flavor. And so I think directionally, and every brewer makes this decision for himself, um, the, uh, uh, it's directionally towards some thinner beers. And then also, the, the, there's, I believe there's a flavor loss uh, in malt associated with this because the higher attenuation or the higher modification raises the color potential. And if you put a, a lower modified malt on the kiln, 
with a single kiln cycle, you'll get a lower con you'll get a lower color than if you put a higher modified malt on the kiln with the same cycle. So brewers tended to insist on they wanted their pale malt to still be 1.6 to 1.8. So what the reaction of monsters has been is to um, alter kiln cycles where they have to to um, get that color that's insisted on in brewer spec and um, it's resulted in a malt flavor loss in, in my opinion. But it sounds like the the pros kind of outweigh the cons if you're an adjunct brewer though. It depends yeah it really depends on your brewing system uh, because um, you know the basis of adjunct brewing is you have to have a high expression of malt attributes because you're going to survive dilution with adjuncts. And you have to higher enzymes, particularly um, uh, you need higher alpha amylase for adjunct grain mashing. So, yeah, adjunct brewing needs all that high expression of attributes. But the, but the problem with comes to all malt brewing because without adjunct dilution, it's really an overexpression of malt attributes, uh, and it's a problem for all malt brewers because the higher enzymes are an attenuation control issue, uh, which I'd like to talk again in a little more detail in another podcast. And the higher fan residual is really a fermentation and flavor stability issue. And, you know, every brewer determines foam quality and mouthfeel, whether they're an issue or not. And generally, in all malt brewing, it's less of an issue because you have the the, the body of an all malt recipe plus a lot of uh, specialty malt inclusions. So, yeah, there's winners and losers depending on your perspective on it. But I would tell you, in general, the the adjunct brewers have the malt that they want, and they've gained they've gained uh, from this. And you know the. Um, in the timing, you have to, again, remember the timing. The, the, we didn't really have an all-malt voice at the start of this change. Because remember, and I'm sure Pat Hayes pointed this out and talked about breeding, uh, the breeding cycle takes close to 15 years, 12 to 15 years. So when we introduced Clogus in, uh, well, let's let's use the example of the most common one now, Metcalf. When we used when we introduced Clog, uh, Metcalf in 1997, that cross for that might have been made early in the 80s. And for sure, you know, that cross that resulted, that eventually went through validation that became Clogus in 1972, that might have been made in the early 60s or late 50s yeah. because of the way the breeding cycle works. So, you know, what that gives us now, we're, we're at kind of a, if we sort of summarize here uh, where we're at, we're, we have a unique two-row in North America, and it's unique compared to the rest of the world because the rest of the world did not change their expectation of two-row at all. And my primary goal with trying to summarize it in, in this podcast is I want to document the creation of this third barley type. And I just want to encourage barley and malt literature and teaching to reflect this. I've, I've included in any of the presentations or any of the course material that I use that it's just important that brewers understand these differences. And, and my three barley premise is based on we changed here, but the rest of the world did not. So, so now we brew with a two-row in this country that's a mixture of traits. You know, we have the benefit of its plump with uniform kernels, like all two-row is. But in North America, it's grown at higher protein, 
and its genetic-based S over T requirements result in a malt that has really high soluble protein, high enzymes, high fan, higher color potential, and these are all six-row traits. So uh, it's it's really fascinating. I mean, for for uh, for an all malt brewer that insists on two row, um, he's really brewing with a with six row traits. You've talked about how six row is on the decline, yeah. um, and 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 that it may even eventually disappear in the U.S. Um, but at one point, I've heard you say that six row will continue to exist as long as there are malt houses east of that six row growing region. Why don't you explain that? Well, yes. And, uh, boy, you remember things you've heard from me, John. <laughs> but I can t- let me give you some facts, first of all. We were a six-row country for 350 years of using between, at the most, we, we, we barely moved out of 90%. I think in 2018, we're going to be 90% two-row. Okay? And it's because of the... First of all, the large adjunct brewers have the ability to have the ability to replace the six row. They don't need six row traits because they have them in the two row traits now. But in terms of the six row, will always exist as long as there are um, malt plants east of the six row area. Um, but the uh, because of the main driver of malt plant economics, and that is when you malt. You grow, you 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 lose twenty to twenty-two percent mass of the barley you start with. Hundred tons of barley in gives you, after cleaning and malting, maybe seventy-eight tons of malt out. So the economic model is based on you can't spend too much money on barley. Uh, infrastructure, barley-related costs on elevation and handling and shipping, because as soon as you reach the malt house, you're going to lose 22% of that value. So the economic model that's understood in malting is you need to malt where the barley is. Yeah, and um, and that's why it, it'd probably be surprising to um, to most uh, brewers, but the two largest malting companies in the world are French. France is the largest uh, barley producing country, one of the largest bar, and it's the largest malt producing and exporting countries. And the two, and, and the economics are, it's the all the large grain producing countries are the large malt producing countries. Um, in some cases, they're just self-sufficient in it, like we are in North America. In some cases, like Australia and Canada and the European Union, they're big exporters, much more than they need locally, and they provide all the malt to the countries that are deficient in um, malt production for, for beer. So, um, yes, it's, it's uh, but I would have to tell you, over time, uh, if, I, if I ticked off the malt plants that have closed as barley production has moved west, it'd be a startling, startling amount of production that has moved uh, as assets are retired and reorganized to the west. And I think it's probably common knowledge that uh, in the last two weeks or so, uh, Cargill, Cargill yeah. uh, announced the uh, closing of their uh, spirit wood plant right in the middle of the six row area. And, so there are that, still malt- that was one of the largest plants in the world, wasn't it? It w- probably, it probably was the largest plant in the world until uh, RAR's expansion in Shakopee, and I think that was neck and neck. But but the reason it's closed is there was uh, it wasn't fully utilized. It was it hadn't been fully utilized for years. 
So, but physically, capacity-wise, yes, it was uh, one of the largest malt plants in the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, and the reason I say that there's going to be 90% of the malt in the United States is going to be two-row, the crop reports, if you look at the crop summaries of uh, everything that's grown in the United States, right now, it's between, after you factor in feed barleys and things like that, it's roughly 75 to 80% of the barley grown in the United States is two-row. However, the, U- the U.S. is deficient in barley, and it brings barley from Canada to malt in the U.S. And the malting industry doesn't make enough barley or doesn't make enough malt for the U.S., so malt is also brought to the U.S. And all that malt, all that barley from Canada is two-row. So I think that pushes the production figures in the United States um, when it transfers through to the malt that's used in the United States, over 90%. That was Joe Hertrick here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Join us next week for part three. If you really study the, the, the profile of the most classic lagers, Bavarian Hellas, and check pills, they are not uh, above 62% degree of attenuation. They are very low. They, they build the body behind the, um, behind the hops with a very nice uh, extract profile that comes out of a low attenuation. Just like that one day, like everyone this North American two-row is not consistent with all malt brewing, and it can be problematic for all malt brewers. And I'd like to cover those all malt brewing impacts and some some um, some pathways to try to mediate that. All malt mash with American malt should be hot and short. 